Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 15. Effects of the Wilderness Journey How do Book of Mormon wilderness journeys of God's people to promised lands help understand Isaiah's prophecies of an end-time wilderness journey? Welcome to podcast number 15, The Effects of the Wilderness Journey. Of course, a wilderness journey would be one immense test of faith to just head off into some crazy wilderness, right? And what's going to happen out there? Do we have enough faith in the Lord to trust that He's going to protect us there, out there, and, and so forth? But that is the very idea. The Lord is going to test us, and as we pass the test, as we actually go through the motions of the test, you have to go through the motions, otherwise it's not a test, right? So as we go through the motions of this test, marvelous things begin to happen with us. <laughs> You'll see how the Lord is going to meet you every step of the way, so to speak. The more you trust in Him, the more He's right there for you. you know, God is in the details of our lives. If we only understood that, how close He is, what a work in project we are, His work in project. How the greatest of all is also the servant of all, how He serves us. And then we'd have no fear. We'd not be foolish, do something stupid, but we don't have to be wise. We have to worship God with our hearts, but with our minds also, and with our whole being. And when we do, He's right there for us. We have tremendous peace that can come from keeping the commandments of God. It's such a cliche almost, keep the commandments of God, keep the commandments. No, we have to be one with the Lord in all our actions, in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And when we do that, Amazing transformation that happens in our lives. And that's what we're going to have to be relying on. And that, what a great practice time that is. And we're out in the wilderness, alone with God, so to speak, and with one another, others of our frame of mind who love the teachings of the gospel, who believe in the revelations and the prophecies, and who are wanting to bring them to pass. What a joy that would be to be among people who believe those things as we do. So here we go. In First Nephi 17 verses 3 and 4, God provides for his people in the wilderness. We see that the commandments of God must be fulfilled. If it so be that the children of men keep the commandments of God, he does nourish them and strengthen them and provide means whereby they can accomplish the thing which he hath commanded them. Wherefore he did provide means for us while we did sojourn in the wilderness. This is the wilderness journey. And we did sojourn for the space of many years Yea, even eight years in the wilderness. Of course, they were also in the land of Bountiful part of that time. Many people think they traveled. They probably traveled for less than two years, maybe one, perhaps even one year, and then spent some time resting in the land of Bountiful before they built the ship, and that would have taken several years. So, but the point here is that they kept the Lord's commandments to go into this wilderness and he, the Lord would provide food and water for them in the wilderness. And he'd nourish them and strengthen them as well. So the Lord does his part when we do ours. Then we go to Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 20, verses 35 through 38, where God brings his people into the wilderness, which is a prediction of Ezekiel of God's people in the end time. He says, I will bring you into the wilderness, the Lord speaking. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face, 
like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, says the Lord God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me, I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Well, who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to all the house of Israel in the end time. And who are the house of Israel in the end time? Well, we are. Well, we, the Jews, first of all, the ten tribes and the Lamanites, and those who lead them through the wilderness. And that would be us, Latter-day Saints, who fulfill the part of favors on Mount Zion to them. He's going to take us into the wilderness, and there he's going to argue with us or plead with us in the wilderness, face to face. Also tells you that there are going to be amazing manifestations, divine manifestations, of angels in the wilderness and the love of the Lord himself at that time. But he's going to purge out amongst the rebels who can't stand being out there, and they want to go back to civilization and to their devices and to their games and so forth. They'll find their own excuses to get, to get out. And so who will be left? Well, only the elect of God, obviously. Those who believe in the revelations and prophecies and who do them, who keep the commandments. All right, so now we're going to go to Isaiah. From after having read these scriptures, we're going to go to Isaiah and see what Isaiah says about this wilderness journey that is predicted for us, God's people, and all the house of Israel. Of course, we know that the ten tribes will come wandering into North America, and we know the Lamanites are coming from the south to the New Jerusalem. And all will meet at the New Jerusalem, but where are the Jews going to go? Are they going to go into a wilderness also? Obviously, yes. Well, what wilderness will that be? Well, probably the wilderness where they were before under Moses, I would say. And won't they be vulnerable to their enemies there? Will, will any of these groups of people, when they come from the north, south, east, and west, and they wander through the wilderness of the earth, will any of them be vulnerable? Yes, but they'll have their proxy saviors with them, right? We've covered that before. They'll have their kings and queens to vouch for them with God, as Hezekiah did for his people. And also, we know that the angel of the Lord protected God's people who wandered with Moses through the wilderness. The angel of the Lord protected them with the cloud of glory that rested over them, so that the Egyptians could not cross through the cloud of glory against the Lord's people. Remember that? Read the book of Exodus and take a look at that. Very important, a very important type and shadow. And Nephi calls upon that type and shadow in his conversation with Laman and Nimble. When they go in their exodus out of Jerusalem to the promised land, he says, basically, we're repeating what Moses and the Israelites did who were led out of bondage to the promised land of Israel. Now we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, and several other scriptures where we see the wilderness is a place of preparation. Of course, what are we preparing for? We're preparing for the coming of the Lord. It says, A voice calls out, In the desert prepare the way up for Jehovah. In the wilderness pave a straight highway for our God. Every ravine must be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground must become level, and rough terrain a plain. So in other words, this is symbolic language. A straight highway for our God, because who's coming? Who are we preparing the way for? We're preparing for Jehovah's coming, or, in other words, the second coming of Jesus Christ to rule upon the earth. 
But do you think he's going to come if we're not ready to receive him? If we're not saints? If we're not sanctified to receive him and see him face to face? Not so. So something has to happen. A preparation has to happen. Of course, this is what John the Baptist endeavored to do among God's people as a preparation for the Lord's coming in his day. And this is also what God's end-time servant does, preparation for the coming of Jehovah or Jesus to rule upon the earth in our day, in the end time. So it also talks about the stones, the, the common stones. <laughs> Isaiah's imagery about stones is interesting because common stones are, signify celestial people, and they're going to have to be, they're going to have to go out of the way. The Lord will get rid of them before he comes in glory to reign upon the earth. And then the semi-precious, of course, correspond with terrestrial glory, a terrestrial glory, and then uh, precious stones would correspond with celestial people or glory. All right, so the Lord is coming to Zion, and a preparation needs to be made. Everybody must be on the same level, so to speak. No elites, in other words. No elites ruling society, no elites ruling anywhere. Not in the church, nowhere. Then we go on to Isaiah 41, verses 17 through 18. Jehovah provides water in the wilderness. Because this is one of the problems that the Israelites had coming out of Egypt, right? Wandering through the Sinai wilderness, which is not where we've been led to believe it is. In the, not in the Sinai Peninsula, it was in Arabia. They crossed the sea into Arabia, and all the evidences for that have been found recently by adventurers who took pictures of all these things. And there we find Isaiah 41, verses 17 and 18. When the poor and needy require water, and there is none, and their tongue becomes parched with thirst, I, Jehovah, will answer their want. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open up streams in barren hill country, springs in the midst of the plains. I will turn the desert into lakes, parched lands into fountains of water. This tells you they're going to go through wilderness, barren country, plains, deserts, parched lands. But in other places, it also tells us they're going to pass through the waters. They're going to pass through the waters and through fire and through mountain ranges and so forth. So a lot of different terrain that they're going to come back to Zion in. Of course, eventually when this keeps happening, beginning with Zion where they end up, the Lord also starts converting the earth into a paradisical state from Zion and her stakes, stretching out in all directions until the entire earth becomes a paradisical like a garden of Eden. But it starts here. It starts with these people paying the price by giving up all and sacrificing their all to join with the Lord and fulfill his plan for the earth. Then we continue reading in Isaiah 43, verses 19 through 21. Jehovah's people trek through the wilderness. I'm making roads through the desert, streams in the wasteland. The wild beasts do me honor, the jackals and birds of prey, for bringing water to the wilderness streams to the dry land, that I may give drink to my chosen people, the people I formed for myself, to speak out in praise of me. So what is going on here? He is really hinting at and giving us clues to the conversion of the land, to the regeneration of the land, as the land begins to blossom, as these waste places, these, these desert areas of the earth begin to blossom, and the deserts and, and waste places no more. They're going to be lush at some point in time. And throughout the millennium, this will keep happening until the entire earth is 
a garden of Eden, so to speak. And we see that in the very next scripture. From Isaiah 51, verse 3, is quoted in 2 Nephi chapter 8, verse 3, the wilderness turns to paradise. It says, Jehovah is comforting Zion, bringing solace through all her ruins. There's going to be horrible destruction throughout the earth, and many of these places will need to be rebuilt and demolished and rebuilt, and rebuilt in, with the architectural designs of Zion, not of Babylon. And everything will be very different from what it is today. You go through places like Las Vegas or any large cities and see the architecture there. And that's not the Lord's, according to the Lord's paradigm. Uh, that's very different. And I'm sure that the architecture of Zion and the cities of Zion will be extraordinarily beautiful. And uh, we know from other scriptures that they are rural based. So there'll be cities and then countryside and orchards and forests and gardens and everything. Very different from today. He says, Jehovah is comforting Zion, bringing solace to all our ruins. Comforting Zion, that is, the people of Zion, the elect, the sanctified ones, the saints. He's making her wilderness like Eden, the Garden of Eden, her desert as the Garden of Jehovah. Joyful rejoicing takes place there, thanksgiving with the voice of song. No sorrow is there, right? Isaiah makes the point elsewhere. There's no sorrow, no crying all rejoicing and thanksgiving, praising God. Can you imagine that? <laughs> After this veil of tears and this celestial glory, what a terrestrial glory would be like, and eventually, of course, even all the more so in a celestial glory at the end of the millennial age. And we also discussed previously how the millennial age is a thousand years of terrestrial time, not of telestial time. And we compared that with a day being to God as a thousand years of telestial time. It means that terrestrial time is somewhere in between. Now, we go to Isaiah 35, more of the same, verses 5 through 6. God regenerates his people in the wilderness. So he regenerates the earth, the land, the deserts, the wilderness, dry areas. But he also regenerates his people. And they spring to life in a way never before. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened. Well, first spiritually, of course. Uh, when they accept the gospel and they see the old traditions and precepts of men did not help them. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf and stop. And then, of course, also physically in that wilderness because there will be miracles of healing. Then shall the lame leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb shout for joy. Water shall break forth in the wilderness and streams flow in the desert. You have the two together, the healing of the one and the healing of the other. Then we read in Isaiah 35, 8 through 10, the ransomed ones come singing to Zion. He says, Isaiah says, There shall be highways and roads which shall be called the way of holiness. The way of holiness. In other words, the way of God. God is holiness. God is the Holy One of Israel. It is for those who are holy who come on this road and no one else really qualifies to go to Zion. Unless they become holy themselves, they cannot enter the city. It says, They shall be called the way of holiness, for they shall be for such as are holy. These highways and roads to Zion, leading to Zion from different directions, these treks through the wilderness, these journeys, led by holy ones. 
uh, teachers and, and leaders of the people who are holy, they shall be for such as are holy or for such who become holy during the journey. Because the whole journey is also a sanctification of the people. Sanctification happens as people are being tried every which way. And of course, they go through adversity, even in the wilderness. Don't say everything is really clean cut. They will have to deal with obstacles and with many different possibilities of opposition, people whom they meet there or threaten them and so forth. But if they pass all the tests, then they will become holy through the journey itself. The unclean shall not traverse them. On them shall no reprobates wander, no telestial people who haven't repented. No lion shall be encountered there, nor shall wild beasts intrude. Why? Because among telestial people left behind or wandering in these wildernesses on their own without divine guidance, they will encounter the lions and the beasts of prey or whatever these lions and beasts of prey symbolize. You know, they could be also mobs and armies of people that are wandering about as predators, predatorizing the, whoever they can. Then we read in Isaiah 35, 8 through 10, the continuation of what we read before. The ransomed ones come singing to Zion again, but the redeemed shall walk them, these highways and roads. The redeemed of God shall walk them. The ransomed of Jehovah shall return. They shall come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Now, anciently, of course, Israel went once or twice a year to Jerusalem from all around the land of Israel, the promised land. They went on pilgrimages to bring sacrifices to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And these were joyous occasions when the people a certain town, like Nazareth, when Jesus went with the child with Mary and Joseph and so on, they went and offered sacrifice. And these were joyous occasions because the people sang the hymns, the songs of Zion on those occasions. They were among their own kind. They were among the most zealous of the people of the land. And that it was a great company, so to speak, and very edifying company. They shall have one joy and gladness when sorrow and sighing flee away. They leave all that behind. In the pilgrimage, they, they left it behind momentarily, but now they leave it behind permanently. The sorrow was necessary in order for them to grow spiritually, to overcome opposition, to pass tests of loyalty to God, keep a higher law each time, and to grow in righteousness and to be empowered of God, to rise above the, the evils of the day. All these things are now left behind finally. So won't you be glad if you pass these tests today and, and finally make it and have no regrets about, oh, I didn't pass that test, too bad. And now I'm finding myself on a lower spiritual level and I have to make it up somehow when it's almost too late or it is too late. No, we don't want to have those regrets, right? So what do we do with adversity today? Opposition and persecution, wherever it comes from, that the Lord allows us to, as challenges to us personally or collectively, we embrace those things because the Lord brings good out of evil. I've been through quite a bit of that myself and looking back on those times that were very severe to me personally and to my family, I say, you know, I would not want to change anything because the Lord in his wisdom knew what he was doing. And so he does for us as we offer up these things to him as a free will offering. He honors that and we grow in the gospel as never before. And that is what happens takes us through these descent phases and brings us up into an ascent phase, being ruined and 
persecuted and humbled and so forth, to being reborn of him on a higher spiritual level than we are. What a glorious journey this is. What a glorious plan the Lord has mapped out for us. I glory in it myself, like Paul. I glory in, in these things because the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. He's every bit part of our lives when we allow him to be. All right, now we go on to Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7. The elect return from the four directions. It says, I will bring your offering from the east and gather you from the west. We read this before, but this is in the context of the wilderness journey, right? I will say to the north, give up. In other words, let go of these captives. To the, soul, to the south, withhold not. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, all who are called by my name, whom I formed, molded, and wrought for my own glory. And this last part of the verse is really important because it is during this very time that the Lord forms us and molds us and makes us new creatures in Christ, or can, and does so his elect, his sons and daughters, whom the kings and queens of the Gentiles bring from dispersion and from captivity and forever they are in bonds throughout the earth, from the four directions of the earth to Zion, out of Babylon to Zion, in the new exodus, through the wandering in the wilderness, he has formed them, molded them, and wrought them for his own glory. He's made them new creatures. He's transformed them. He's regenerated them, spiritually and physically. By the time they arrive there, which will be according to the Lord's own plan, whichever way he leads them, through the wilderness, by the time they get there, hopefully all of them will have conformed to this Lord having formed and molded and wrought them for his own glory. He's recreated them closer to his image and likeness so that he can come, come then and dwell among them. Right, so in summary, thank you for being with me today. I love the scriptures, don't you? As, as I read these things, I'm enthralled by the Lord's promises and also the experiences that he gives us as we journey through life. They're so precious from moment to moment even. In summary, the end-time wilderness journey will test and teach God's people as it did anciently under Moses. The time frame is the end time when God gathers and restores his people of the house of Israel. And we, of course, help gather them. And moving forward, are we prepared to participate in a wilderness journey at some point ourselves? Hopefully, yes. And leave everything behind, all our nice things. Are we going to be like Lot's wife and say, oh, that's not going to happen. Oh, things are going to return to normal. Really? Now, what happened to Lot? Well, she became a pillar of salt, as you know, and Lot and his two daughters went on. But the angels really had to strong-arm them out of there almost. All right, so I recommend a reading or listening my book, The Last Days, Types and Shadows from the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And it is a great standard to read from and look at these Book of Mormon types and how the Book of Mormon interacts with Isaiah. Thank you very much for joining us today. Please share. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn When Will Zion Be Established? Do Latter-day Saints understand that Zion is established among the house of Israel just prior to Jesus' second coming in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah 43.5?